HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, I am joined by Zach Mongeman of Sobe Madre, an incredible tortilla in Bushwick. We talk about growing up in Oaxaca, his search for the perfect pastry that took him around the world, how he fell in love with his culinary heritage cooking family meals at some of the globe's best restaurants, and the path to opening a restaurant featuring heirloom Mexican corn in Brooklyn. Later on in the episode, we dip into our archives with a performance from Life Simon. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacking Tunes on HRN. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. We came in search of the secrets of immortality, to be like God, to be like God, and here, more of us, more humanity.
Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, on my first interview of the year, I am joined by Zach Wangerman, a sobre masa in Williamsburg, and just reading about your restaurant and your entire food program has my mouth watering. We're going to get to that, but let's go back to the beginning. You are from Oaxaca. Uh, you grew up there. What was your childhood like? And you said you always knew you wanted to be a chef. When did that thought pop into your head? And what were some of the early attempts uh, on your culinary journey? <laughs> um, well, yeah, from like you said, I'm from Oaxaca. And I've wanted to be a chef for a very long time now. Um, probably just early, early high school. I started to be curious about cooking. Um, and I started really just exploring the local restaurants and a couple of them let me go in and start staging with them, start, you know, spending the day with them. So I, you know, be in high school and then working the weekends, working weddings and stuff like that in these restaurants. And, um, that really helped just seal, <laughs> seal my love for cooking. So as soon as I graduated, I knew that, you know, this was going to be my path to, to pursue. What were some of the lessons that you got from working those early jobs that you still carry today? Um, well, I think, I think honestly, it was a, a very strong just reality check, just knowing that it's an ambitious industry. It's an industry that requires a lot of hard work. Um, and it's an industry that requires a lot of love as well, you know. Um, so I think, I think probably one of the biggest things for me early on was just falling in love with um, the industry and, and the community, you know, just have this whole industry that's fueled by extremely passionate individuals. Um, Incredible. Um, one of the things that you noticed early on that there was like an accessibility gap to really good pastries where you were, uh, what was that revelation? Um, well, you know, my, my grandparents are, are from the States. Um, and so I would come visit them every, you know, every Christmas, every spring break. And, um, I just really noticed, you know, like those English muffins, I used to love English muffins. Um, I used to love just, you know, croissants and, and just this level of pastry and baked goods that I just always missed in Oaxaca, you know? Um, and I knew I wanted to be a cook and I love, I love pastry and, you know, just even honestly, even just like a chocolate chip cookie, you just could not find in Oaxaca when I was there. And what was what was the current state of pastries in Oaxaca? Um, well, in, obviously now it's a lot changed, and there's a lot of people. I, I apologize. At that time, what was the like? What was the current condition? Oh well, at that time, there wasn't really anything. There wasn't really any any like as opposed to like I guess refined French pastry and, and baked goods. Um, there wasn't there wasn't really anyone executing it at at a proper level um you know there was a lot of great just you know mexican pastries like the conchas and the orejas and, you know the polvorones and all those things but um you know there was probably two mezcal bars you know and i imagine pastries you know <laughs> right you know there wasn't much so that took you on a global journey, um, the search of a, a good pastry. Where did you go um, after you left high school and uh, continued on your journey? Um, after I left high school, I I got a stage at John at John George with Johnny Uzzini and um, with Francois Payard when he had just reopened his, his bakery in Houston. This was in 2010. And, you know, culinary school was a big commitment for me and I wanted to make sure if I was going to go, it was going to be for pastry. I never really worked professionally in pastry before. So 
you know, I spend three months at each just really, um, I guess, making sure it's, it's what I wanted to do before committing to culinary school. And, you know, to choose uh, the track of pastry, you know, most people want to work the line, they want to work the hot station, they want to, you know, flip meat, etc. What do you feel you gained by focusing on pastry uh, versus if you had gone a more traditional route? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm a very big nerd and, and I love reading and I love understanding ingredients. Um, I think in culinary, you also need a deep understanding in ingredients, but um, I think in pastry, even more so at a, you know, chemical level, understanding, you know, the crystals and chocolate to be able to temper it properly. And um, just all that research and how just knowledge on ingredients really powered you to be able to manipulate them in shapes, textures and flavors um, that I didn't really know were were possible. Um, just, you know, just understanding the science behind chocolate alone is, you know, is, is, is a career path all, all on its own. And then, and then, you know, when you separate it into bread and, you know, um, confectionery work, it's just, it's just a whole, it's just a whole world that I was just completely in love with. Um, you know, I was also being exposed to more things like, um, I love the, I just, I, I really love the uncertainty of. As soon as the mix is done, as soon as it goes in the oven, that's it. There's no fixing it. You know, um, Godspeed at that point, right? Um, so, I, so I really loved, I really loved the research behind things, and and being able to use that knowledge to manipulate things. It's a very Zen approach. You know, you can't just like add salt or crack some pepper over it in the end. You just gotta be confident and, and walk walk away. Uh, I am curious, you know, what is one of the most more misunderstood things about chocolate? Um, you know, I think, I think chocolate is, chocolate is a lot, a lot of work. Um, just, you know, I mean, just, it's, it's a very complex food. I mean, everything from just like the farming and, um, and the fermentation, you know, it, it undergoes in the farm and the drying process. Um, you know, that's like one massive step and then you have the roasting of it, right. And grinding of it into the, into the paste before even me as pastry chef, I got it. It's already gone through like, you know, a massive history and a massive amount of technique and hands. Um, and just a manipulation alone, you know, you look at cocoa, cocoa butter, you know, which is like the main fat and chocolate, it, it crystallizes in six different shapes and, you know, you need to take it through basically a series of temperatures in you know a certain amount of times to be able to work with it properly so that I can you know have a proper shelf life so it can have that nice shine that we see in chocolate that have that um, you know that texture that like smooth texture um, so I think I think people you know you, you take a you know a chocolate bar and, and I don't really think people realize just the amount of work and labor that that goes into it you know from seed to, you know, to, you know, like, let's say a finished bonbon. And, and now, now they're taking it to a whole nother level. Like I see these like competition chefs doing these like chocolate sculptures, man. Like I have no, I have no idea how they, how they achieve some <laughs> of the things that they achieve there. Um, when you were staging and cooking, you started to exper- experience nostalgia for Mexican food and the food of your youth and started cooking it for family meal. What were some of the dishes that you cooked and what were some of the iterations you made on the classic traditions? Um, you know, when I was in, in Medawood, that's when that started to happen. Just like my itch of, oh, my God, I don't know how to make family meal. I mean, I don't know how to cook Mexican food, um, even being from there. And it all started very simple. 
you know, my, my sous chef asked me to make ochata for family meal. And I was like, oh my God, like I've never made, I've never made ochata before. Um, and that just, yeah, that was definitely the beginning, you know, that sous chef by saying that thing probably impacted my life. You know, it's probably one of the sentences that, that has impacted my life the most, you know, just, I guess, counting that sentence as the beginning of that journey. But um, from there on, I was like on this mission to understand and learn more about my cuisine. At Meadowood, you know, when I was working there, I cooked all seven moles from Oaxaca there and learned how to make them um, through there. And, and then a little bit more so just on my own, um, learning how to make tamales properly. That was, you know, also a really big journey for me. Um, tamales are one of the oldest foods in the world that are still consumed and in many ways still consumed just like they were consumed in pre-Columbian times. Um, so understanding that history was something that really fascinated me and being able to execute it um, at a level as if I was having it in Oaxaca was was a big challenge for me. Uh, you went on and had amazing stages. And as you men- mentioned, you spent two years at the restaurant at Meadowood. Um, after leaving that, you started focusing on a series of pop-ups where kind of the core identity was quality ingredients. That was that was the main thing. What were you cooking at those pop-ups and what were you trying to say and express with your food? Um, you know, those pop-ups were utterly selfish cooking. And I say that because I, <laughs> I only cook things that I missed eating. Um, you know, um, one of my favorite moles from Oaxaca that you just don't really see here. Everything's a mole negro, which is great. Um, but my favorite mole was this mole almendrado, which is rich in almonds. And it also has... Um, it also has capers and olives in it. It has a lot of that like Spanish influence into it. Um, and I just love this almendrado. Um, and you couldn't find it anywhere. So I think that's a good dish of those examples because it's a dish that you don't really see that often. And it's a dish that's very popular in Oaxaca. Um, and it's a dish that I miss, you know, very much. Hmm. And that's also where you got really into corn. Um, and I'd love for you to explain the current state of the corn industry in Mexico and your approach to bringing awareness to it and working with local farmers as well. Um, well, yeah, I think through these pop-ups, you know, making this almendrado mole, you're like, well, I need tortillas to serve with this mole. And um, that was a very hard, um, hard task to accomplish. I, uh, you know, in, in these, in these, um, and through all this research of learning how to make all these dishes, all this Mexican food, you know, making tortillas in New York City, um, was probably the biggest challenge um, from all of it, just because um, accessibility. I didn't have access to corn. I didn't have access to a mill, right? I didn't have access to like a nice comal. And also tortillas are just so, you know, accessible in Mexico. I've never really done nixtamalization before. Um, I started doing these trips to Mexico solely with the focus of learning nixtamalization and seeing all these ladies. I, I really saw the the product in all in all of its shapes and sizes from beautiful hand-pressed artisanal tortillas to like a more manufactured industrial industrial process and i i had a very pastry chef mentality to, to this you know like let's find the perfect recipe to a tortilla and let me understand the ingredients so i can be able to execute this um but you know i'm asking all these people like well what's the perfect tortilla for you and they all had a different answer and that's when it really just felt like an endless journey because, you know, and I'm, I, I guess it's more por- pointed towards answering your question about the state of, of, of corn in Mexico. The truth, the state of corn is that it's, it's a nation who has thrived 
on this ingredient for thousands of years. And it has millions of different tastes, shapes, textures, and everyone likes it different. So what's the perfect tortilla? I think the answer really depends on your abuela. Hmm. Um, you know, and it was an answer I was never going to get. I had to understand what was a perfect tortilla for me, you know, um, which is what, what we're serving at, at the restaurant now. Um, and, and the important thing is, you know, learning how to manipulate the ingredient in a way that will help you get there, you know? And I think that's when cooking gets really personal. I think that's when cooking gets really delicious. Well, I think the listeners would beg to know what is your perfect tortilla? Um, to me, the most important thing about a perfect tortilla is the slightly burnt, the slightly burnt edges around the corner. I think um, when you get a little bit of burnt on there, it, it just really um, makes your aroma a lot more complex. Um, I actually like them slightly thicker than what I'm used to in Oaxaca because I like the creamy, the creaminess um, from the bite, and I like a strong tortilla. You know, a strong uh, tortilla that can really, um, you know, take a nice amount of filling, take, take, take a punch. You don't want something that falls apart on the the first bite. Exactly. We all know what that's like. (laughs) Yeah. It's like 10 napkins you're probably eating over a trash can anyway. um, You also work with a number of really local heirloom corn growers. How did you build those relationships? And are there any you'd like to kind of call out and and highlight um, that are making really special types of corn? You know, at the beginning of the journey, um, we were like, we have to work with local farmers. But then it's like just running a restaurant in New York is such a battle on its own. And one of the important things that we found in this journey is that there's a whole community in Mexico. There's a whole community of people that acknowledge corn as, you know, the beautiful ingredient that it is, as the importance it has to Mexico culturally and also just like at a nutrition at a nutritional level, you know, as and and so there's a huge community that's just trying to support this ingredient. It makes it very easy for us in New York because you only need to know one person in that community to have access to all these amazing tools, network, and and resources. Um, we we're, we work very closely with Tamoa, and they do a much better job at sourcing than I think we, we could ever do. Um, you know, they 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 source corn from many different places. Um, they they work with farmers on pilot programs. You know, a lot of them they work with these beautiful heirloom seeds that they some of them have inherited probably for over 150 generations. Um, but you know, a lot of them are still stuck in that. Um, green revolution mentality, still using fertilizers. So working with them with pilot programs and, you know, trying to regenerate the health of their soil. Um, you know, so we, we like working with Tomo a lot. We like that they're based in Mexico and that they're a Mexican company. We like that the money stays in Mexico. That's very important to us, um, that a Mexican company is actually distributing it. It's kind of like, I think, a step beyond trying to think, you know, um, having Mexico help them grow out of like this third world mentality mind, you know, where you need other people to, to distribute their riches. Um, but yeah, you know, um, and, and, and I think the beautiful, the beautiful thing about, about working with Tomoa too, is that they just have, um, as they grow, you know, they just have so much access to so many different varietals, some varietals you fall in love and you don't see for a while, you know, and there's always something new. Um, one thing that's very important, I think about the corn world is that there's a diversity to it. And the important thing is to try to embrace that diversity. And that's something that we talk to our wholesale clients about is, you know, you might not know what you're going to get. And that's not a bad thing, you know, because we don't want to be in the position of saying, I want this varietal and this color all the time. Um, You know, we really want to showcase the diversity of the corn. 
When you say we and wholesale, can you are you also selling corn? Yeah. So the idea behind our restaurant here in Bushwick is um, at the front, we have a tortilleria where you can come buy tortillas, get a coffee. And then immediately behind that is our tortilla factory where we manufacture tortillas for our restaurant. And then we do a little bit of wholesale um, and, and retail. And, um, and it's important for us to also be a tortilleria that you can come and buy tortillas and just, you know, just have another, another channel to share the tortilla love with, with New York City. And in the back, we basically just do cocktails and, and tacos. Amazing. We're going to take a quick musical break. Uh, we're going to play a song from our archive, and then we're going to come back with Zach and talk all about Sobre Masa here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. She's a wilder woman 
out the pages, pimping out the pages in your book. Oh, we're gonna find another way back home. Written in our blood, oh, it's written in our bones. Yeah, we're only being bound, being bound by the things we choose. Yeah, we're So let's go back. I know that you just touched on a brief overview of the restaurant, but you opened in 2021, a bold year to open any type of culinary establishment. What led to that decision and what is the really grand vision of the place? Well, the restaurant has been a a concept that has been in my mind for many years. And just um, I've been toying with the concept of just having an establishment where you can have good tortillas in New York City because um, it's just something that seems so simple, but it's just so hard to do. Um, and I think the pandemic allowed that time for, you know, a lot, a lot of us chefs to just sit down and, and look back at your career and try to, you know, get get a business plan together. And, you know, now you have all this time that, that you might have not had before and into conceptualizing something. And I think that, you know, during the lockdown, that was really when I had time to just sit down and look at my past experience and, and put together this business plan. And we wanted to do this. Um, we wanted to do this, you know, this restaurant where you could just celebrate corn and all its shapes, sizes, and, you know, and bridles because it's, it's such an incredible ingredient. And people don't even know that there's, you know, different bridles of corn um, and that, you know, they all taste different and look different. So how can we have a place where we can just, you know, celebrate that? celebrate that ingredient and celebrate its producers as well. Um, and that's really, you know, how, how the idea came to be. And that's really what, um, what was in our hearts when we started looking for, for a location. It's interesting because it is um, cocktail bar, coffee bar, pastry shop, <laughs> tortillas. But I also think that it's a very um, microcosm of what restaurants need to be post-pandemic, or at least, you know, no one's just going to be like, oh, I'm opening up like a 45-seat restaurant. We're going to serve, you know, heirloom corn. It seems to be this really modern blend of like, well, if we have to keep pivoting, there's still revenue sources. Is that just a natural outcome or was that part of the consideration of the different businesses you opened under one roof? Um, No, that was definitely it. Um, You know, um, it was just kind of like moving away from putting all our eggs in one basket and thinking of different ways to, um, yeah, to sell masa, basically, to sell tortillas. Um, and have, yeah, it just seems like the smarter business move to have different revenue sources, just like, you know, you hit it right on the nail. 
I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you have 20,000 pounds of corn at any given time within the, the space. Um, where do you store it? And how much corn do you run through during the week? Follow-up question, is there a shelf life to corn where past a certain amount of time it's not good, like coffee beans or anything along those lines? Um, well, the corn we store in the dining room, it surrounds the walls of the of the restaurant. <laughs> so it's, I guess, by nighttime decor and by morning storage. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we were going through, probably through, I mean, it's changed now in January, it's slowed down a lot, but... Um, there during the end of December, we were probably going through 400 pounds of masa daily. Um, and, um, the corn has a shelf life of one year. Amazing. Um, one year at room temperature, I think, (laughs) how we store it in, in these, in these bags, right? It's incredible. Uh, I want to touch on some of the other parts of the space. Um, I want to start with the coffee bar. You're serving Oaxacan beans and also making Mexican hot chocolate. Where do you source your coffee from, and what are some of the flavor notes behind Oaxacan coffee? Um, the coffee is just, I think, you know, in this path of working with tortillas and working with this community, it's really nice to just like, um, I guess you stumble across silver linings. You know, I have a friend in Oaxaca that grows coffee. And then our landlord has a coffee roasting business. Um, so it's very easy to just get the coffee for my friend and have our landlord, um, you know, roast it for us. He has a cool company called Shared Roasting based off of Brooklyn, right? Um, so I think that's um, that's cool. And I think that's something that we learned from the pandemic as well, right? It's just um, community and, and working together, right? Um, so our coffees, um, our coffee, you know, I think we go a little bit, darker than um i guess most like single origin coffee roasters would do because we like that little bit of dark roast from you know um i guess like the bodega coffee the new york city bodega coffee we like those memories and we like we like those flavors um and um, we wanted to to follow up a little bit more on just the memory memorabilia from that um Although, you know, a, a lighter roast does bring in more of the out, nuances of the green beans. Um, and I think our coffee, I think the Oaxaca coffee is really nutty, but I think more specifically um, that we get off of the single origin that you don't really get off of most single origins is milk chocolate. It's very milk chocolatey. You know, it's delicious. And paired with your hot chocolate, uh, I mean, for those who don't know what a Mexican hot chocolate is, can you please enlighten them? <laughs> well, Mexican hot chocolate, I mean, chocolate is from Mexico and the first way it was consumed was through a beverage. So, you know, just hot chocolate like that. And we have it with water. I know that's sacrilegious for a lot of people, but that's the original way of consuming chocolate for thousands of years, you know, before, um, the Spanish brought over dairy. Um, so that was a very important thing when we served hot chocolate. Um, not a lot of people go for it, but you know, you can have it with water. Um, which is actually how I prefer to drink it. Um, and we we do it in a Oaxacan style, which is basically seasoned very heavily with toasted cinnamon. Um, and yeah, and that's it. Um, we're actually changing up. We're going to start working with um, Vesta, who uses Dominican coffee. And they they roast. They're like a small bean-to-bar company in, in New Jersey. We, um, I think we're going to start working with them soon to um, with, with their chocolate for... for um, 
Amazing. And you're also serving full circle Mexican pastries. Uh, I'd be remiss to ask, you know, what <laughs> what has made it uh, into the restaurant? What What's made the cut? And, and what have you, uh, and have you created anything of your own that gets the label of Mexican pastry? You know, it's really, um, it's really ironic. And I left to learn how to make, to bring fresh French pastries to Mexico. And here I am doing Mexican pastries in the U.S. <laughs> um, like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until you um, get punched in the face. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I've, we do these conchas really well, which we're really proud of. And I think Mexican pastries have really evolved or I think really declined in a way where you don't really have that pride in Mexico. Like, let's say an Italian would of saying, I make Parmesan and it's really good quality. And I'm going to just, you know, I take pride in what I make and I take pride in the quality. I think a lot of times in, in Mexico and especially in the baking world, it's, you know, like, I need to sell more and in order to sell more, I need to make it cheaper. And how do you make it cheaper? You know, add water instead of milk, reduce the amount of eggs or something like that. So I used to go to these pastry bakeries and I used to be like, how's the recipe different from when your grandfather used to make it? And the recipe was completely different. You know, um, it completely evolved. You know, it used to have more dairy. It used to have like pulque in it, which is like the Mexican beer. A lot of those breads used to have pulque as like, I guess to help the yeast, give it give it a nice because it's very it's a very yeasty um, beverage. Um, and so I was I was like I was just really taken back by how much these pastries had just declined in quality. Um, and so nobody really wanted to give me a recipe, but um, by hearing the stories, you know, we we were doing these you know these recipes of what I think a concha might have tasted <laughs> a generation or two ago, um, and we're. We're, we're, we're very happy with the product. Again, it's kind of like a silver lining. You know, we have this, spent all this money in culinary school learning how to do these baked goods, you know. Um, might as well um, put them to work also on our team. And one of our partners is Jesus Perea, who, you know, was a pace, opening pastry chef at Cosme. So, you know, he's also a great, a great source. And he's actually the one that's doing all the pastries right now. When you said no one would give you uh, a, a recipe, what did you mean by that? Yeah, like if you ask them what your recipe for your concha is, is like no one will tell you that, you know. But you'd say, oh, like you know, do you put eggs in it? Do you have milk in it, right? And um, you know, you see, you know, you see the texture of the dough, you feel the texture of the dough. So you just kind of like have to, um, you know, just trial and error <laughs> off of just hearing hearing these stories. And um, moving to another section of the space, uh, you're also a full-time restaurant. You have a daytime menu and a nighttime menu. What are some of the dishes that you're serving there? Um, for the nighttime, we just do tacos. Um, not just do tacos. That's like, we don't we diminish like, the taco. We take pride. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, <laughs> here I am like trying to, you know, fight something. And now I'm like, that's exactly why we do tacos, you know, right. because it's not just a taco. Um, you know, um, we focus on El, uh, El Pastor and Bestec, um, which are two of the, two of the, you know, tacos you would find in, a in, I guess, Mexican street food, Mexican, Mexican street food, especially when it comes to tacos, what tacos you serve revolve around your cooking equipment. So for instance, if you have those big cacerolas, casseroles, you're probably doing carnitas, right? If you're doing a grill, you're probably focusing on carne asada. Um, and those Mexican city taquerias, they have a plancha and they have a pastor oven. And that's our specialty here. And the important thing for us in the restaurant is we really want you to try and think of Mexican food 
is Japanese food. Japanese food has done such a good job at marketing themselves in this country. If if I if I go to a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant that has sushi, yakitori, and ramen, the odds are it's, you're going to think it's a terrible Japanese restaurant because Japanese, you know, either they specialize in yakitori or they specialize in ramen. And Mexican cuisine is the same way. You have people that are just serving carnitas tacos their entire lives. Um, our our guy that works at Pastor, he he is an unbelievable craftsman. I would compare it to a sushi chef. I mean, the guy, this, his ability to just like cut the meat, build a trompo and execute it, you know, like he can single-handedly probably serve 200 people just with like the speed that he's acquired over his, his, his time in Mexico City. And so that's what we want to showcase, you know, um, tacos as a craft that require attention and constant um, pursuit of perfection. Um, that's why we only have three things on our menu. It's incredible. I, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's such a good way to frame that. I, I've actually never heard that before, but it makes complete sense. Um, I want to finally touch on your beverage program because you have a, a major focus on Mexican spirits. And I'm curious what your angle and take is given the rise of Mezcal in the last few years being from Oaxaca. Um, I think it's, it's crazy. It's really fueled Oaxaca in, in ways I didn't really imagine. When I first moved to the States, I used to have to point out Oaxaca in a month on a map and now it's more like oh i'm going there next month like give me recommendations of mezcal bars you know and like i don't man i used to never go to a mezcal bar you know i don't even think that was a thing um or at least it was just beginning to you know you had like in situ or like some of the classic ones um i think what we try to do especially with the corn is showcase diversity of Mexican corn and its producers, and we're trying to embrace the same mentality with our bar program. But this guy, um, um, our, our beverage director, his name's Gaston, and he's done a really great job. You know, I, I said that with a corn, and then he just built this beverage program around that philosophy of saying it doesn't just have to be mezcal. And it's cool too because there's so many great people that are you know trying to make a good rum, trying to make corn whiskeys based out of corn. You know. Um, so we have eight cocktails right now, and they all have a story, and they're all unique and different all in their own way and spirit, trying to really showcase that that diversity, you know. Um, we have, you know, cocktails with posh, which is, uh, you know, a spirit from Chiapas. We have um, cocktails with charanda, which is a spirit from Michoacan. We have, you know, um, a cocktail with corn whiskey, right, um, which is fairly, you know, I guess fairly fairly new brands, but are really trying to you know make this a thing and, and evolve evolve this industry. So I think it's important to point out that we're not trying to just be focused on mezcal um, with a restaurant. We're really trying to showcase that diversity and all the producers because there's a lot of people um, that are trying to do a lot of really cool things with the spirits in Mexico and really like you know move move the industry forward. And I think they all all really deserve a a shout out. Um, there's this uh, company in the Yucatan, Casa Tarisi, that does these liqueurs, and they do this sour orange liqueur. They have a coconut, and they have like um, they have a guanabana one also, and they're just they're phenomenal. They're they're they're, they're world class liqueurs that you know can match any 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 European liqueur. So I think it's cool to 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 have those those products on our beverage menu. Um, Amazing. As pertains to the mezcal. Um, you know, I think our mezcal list is very, is, is very small. Um, and we try to do a very good job at curating it. And I think Gaston has done a nice job at, 
uh, just taking all of our opinions into account, you know. He asked me what my favorite mezcal is to drink, and, you know, that's on the shelf. He asked my dad, and that one's on the shelf, you know, um, as well as some fun new stuff that, you know, um, keeps coming in. Um, I think there's a lot of politics behind mezcal in Oaxaca as the industry grows, and there's just so much more money poured into it. And, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of fear because it drives a lot of things that you don't necessarily want your hometown to to become, you know, like gentrified. Um, but, you know, it's also pouring a lot of money into the economy. And it's also doing 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 a lot of good. Right. Um, so I think like everything, it's got like it's ups and downs. Well, chef, thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can people find the restaurant? How can they follow you? How can they come eat your perfectly burnt tortillas? <laughs> Our tortillas, um, you can find them in Bushwick. Um, we are at 52 Harrison Place. You can always give us a shout out on Instagram. We are, um, our handle is at Sobre Masa. It's uh, Sobre Lower Dash Masa. Um, and you can also always write us an email at hola at Sobre Masa or, you know, visit our website, sobremasa.com for, for more information. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to play another song from our archives and we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Yay! Awesome. Let's do it, kids! Whoa, 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 whoa. Hot damn! Thank you. Check it. Oh, oh, okay. Wake up in the morning to the clear blue sky. Turn up the music when I hop in the ride. The windows down, let the whole world see. Can't nobody rock it like little old me. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I got my chunks and my dickies and I put it on black. Banging Sinatra in the black Cadillac. My old lady hanging out the whole window. Everybody looking when we walking slow. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Come on. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Everybody singing now. Okay, now one for the money and a two for the show. But three to be a legend, even if I'm po. I ain't chasing nothing, you gon' have to catch me. And if you wanna taste, you gon' have to pay a fee. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Two on my Molly Ring walls and my little scarecrows. Where they hear my racket, where they all hit the flow. Ladies rock a pose, come up in the front row. The homies in the back tip the hats real low. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Come on. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Everybody singing now. Come on. Let's go. Whoa. Come on, everybody, won't you clap your hands? White folks, do it on time if you can. Sounds good, now here's the plan. Let's all sing together like we in the same band. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Ooh. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. About to take it on a whole new level Grabbing the light on the run from the devil Been downtown for too long I feel the sun rising all up in my bones I'm the bomb in about to blow up I'm the bomb in about to blow up 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We're we're light asylum. We're light you asylum. Invited light us asylum. Here. Welcome. Welcome. This is our. F- Thank pretty, you. We're gonna. Call, I know it's not fall technically, but this is our first fall show. Uh, it's the yeah, post. It's like post Labor Day. End of summer. End of summer. End of summer. So uh, why don't you introduce yourselves? Um, I'm Shannon. And I'm F. Bruno. Shannon F. Shannon and Bruno. F. Bruno C. Bruno C. <laughs> um, welcome to the show. Um, for Thanks. the listeners who are not aware of your magic, uh, why don't you give them a little bit of background on who you are? Or how you came to be? Um, Bruno and I, we met while um, touring with some friends in a band uh, called Bunny Rabbit. And that was about, how long has it been now? Through, uh, four years ago, 2007. Yeah. And uh, we bonded while we were stuck in a minivan together. Um, Bruno was uh, performing uh, in Bunny Rabbit, playing guitar. And also doing like his solo project, uh, Bruno and the Dreamies, and I was uh, with a friend um, invited to come along after um, having already been on tour a bunch. But ah, get back in the van and uh, as the pumpster and derriere, and um, (laughs) just a funny little booty based thing. Um, Yeah. So anyway, we uh, bonded over um, music interests and I was like we should play some music together sometime it took a couple of years um, for me to not be touring with Chick 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 and now I'm just focused on this and Bruno joined the band like two years after uh, I had started it Um, and we've never looked back and this is the perfect in permanent incantation of 
Light Asylum. It's a magic-themed episode today. <laughs> All incantations. Um, so I know that you have a big, uh, Shannon, large background in the Brooklyn Museum. We, we talked how I saw you sing at that magical celebration TV on the radio Union Hall show. The hottest I, show ever. Yeah, in the back Union of the show. Pool? Union yeah. Pool? Union Pool. Union Pool, yeah. Did I say Union Hall? Yeah. Which is where you played on Friday, so too many unions. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bruno, what is your, are you, have you from here or where are you from? Um, I grew up in New Jersey, not too far away, yeah. Awesome. Dirty Jers. Dirty Jers? Where, where do you represent? The North, the Middle, the South? Uh, North. North? Yeah. Are you a Flyers fan? Uh, what? <laughs> the answer is no. Are you a Devil? Are you a Devil fan? Oh, the New Jersey Devils? No, oh, I'm not a hockey fan, sorry. Just say, just say you're a Flyers fan. <laughs> I'm a Flyers fan. That's awesome. Oh, awesome. We amazing. just lost some fans. Yeah. Um, you know, why don't we get a, get a song in? So or you, gain some fans. Or gain some fans, because I know that uh, we want to get you guys alive, and they have if a great setup in here. New York. We, conti- we continue to, like, redefine what type of live setup we can we can do in here. Um, now I know we can do Re- a bunch really, of sense. Really pushing the boundaries. Yeah. It's a uh, really nice shack you guys got here. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's shipping containers, I'll actually. Way, if, if these two shipping containers were my apartment, I wouldn't be mad. No, I wouldn't either. It'd be yours, and it's the future. Pretty, I'd put a little shower over here. Nice. Then the water would be heated from the roof. I'm a really good subletter if you should ever need a yeah, subletter. Uh, we can just build like bunk beds. Like, Looking right for someone walls. to fill out one half a shipping container. <laughs> Brooklyn, obviously. Yeah. Um, $1,000 a month utilities not included. What? <laughs> no. I'm actually looking for a permanent place to live. So if there's anybody out there who knows of a good place and they're, they're not tw- psycho yeah. and you want they want to share what's space. What's the Twitter? <laughs> they can tweet at you. Um, light Asylum. All right. Light. <laughs> and she'll probably be on the road, which is a benefit. Yeah, um, but I might need a subletter. Depends on how cheap it is. If it's yeah. really cheap, then I won't need to get a subletter. Do you do uh, early morning breakfast and serenading? Sure, <laughs> for a, a decrease in rent. Awesome. I, I do that, breakfast yeah, do and serenading. That. All right, so what's the first song we're playing? Uh, Dark Allies. Dark oh. Allies. Yeah. All right, Dark Allies, Light Asylum Live on Snacky Tunes.
Gets a little warm in the shipping container. I uh, smell funny. Uh, that was great. What was that song called? Dark Allies. Um, so you just said that you were looking for a subletter. Where did you come back from? Um, we spent the summer... Hi, if you just started listening, we're Light Asylum. Oh, yeah, this is Light Asylum. Sorry. From Brooklyn, New York. I'm going to take your job. Yeah, take my... Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. It All pay? I do is just eat pizza, really. Yeah. <laughs> Does it pay? Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, um, you know, just in case this doesn't work out. But yeah. I, I think it's going to work out. I think it's going to work out. Um, we just came back from spending the summer in uh, Berlin, actually. Ooh. Hi to all of our Berlin peeps. We miss the hell out of you. How is Berlin? I know it's amazing. I know everyone goes there. Is it as cheap as they say it is? Um, you know, like everywhere, it's amazing that it's like affecting even the um, other countries, but the the the. It's just like homogenized everywhere, and there's gentrification everywhere. Yes. What was the? Uh, it's what world did, domination. What did you eat when you were out there? Uh, lots of margarita pizzas and kebabs. Shawarma. Lots of shawarma. Yeah. There, there's something about schnitzel. The, actually, they're called Bratwurst? doners or yeah, donors. There's something about like the European uh, doner that just somehow I don't understand how they can't. Recreate it in in the states. I don't know what it is. <laughs> there are good donut kebabs here in the states. Not yeah. like yeah, I think it's better there. There's like the bread is different. The yeah. bread's different. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, there's probably good ones here, but it's probably like to get like a European donut. It's like ten dollars as opposed to the you know it's like the full, two euros. the two euros out there. Like the massive. There's something yeah. about that that. European white sauce It's better than The American white sauce <laughs> Like uh, for I think for when I was there For New Year's in Berlin Like I had Donner For like our New Year's Eve dinner Just because it was so It was so delicious How many uh, <laughs> what's, what's, what's the largest German beer you had When you were there How many ounces 64 72 Well not this time But um, other times Traveling across um, Germany um, go to the famous Brauhaus. Oh like, yeah, yeah, the one in Williamsburg wants to be, but like <laughs> seriously, um, I don't know. Like, what is that? A liter? <laughs> no, it's more. It's seven hundred fifty milliliters. Okay, so it's like, like a, a wine two liter beer. It's like as big as your two head. two liter beer. It's like as big as your head so and a heavy. Up. It's like a workout. Like, yeah, but is it like a two hand lift type? Yeah, situation? for real. Seriously. That'd be so, the double beer mug. Handle. How embarrassing would it be if like you couldn't lift your <laughs> beer mug? You're like, yeah. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, sure. And you're like, I'm. That's why I've straw. Oh yeah, you drink drink your beer with a straw. Who drinks beer with a straw? <laughs> well, when you can't lift a two liter beer sign, you don't have any options. Uh, so, but Berlin was cool. Did did you guys go anywhere else in Europe? Yeah, we actually um, got to play. I booked a show with uh, some some heroes. Of ours, actually, Bruno and I bonded over this band when I asked him if he knew who the Clan of Zymox was. He was like, "I've never met anybody who knew who the Clan of Zymox was," <laughs> and I was like, "Cool, we'll play with them someday." And so we did. In Leipzig, we opened for them. What's like? How was, yeah, how was meeting heroes? heroes? It's amazing. They're super sweet, like awesome people. Couldn't believe it. You so know? you would recommend meeting your heroes. Um, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I, I would say it's a... I've, we ha- we were lucky. Yeah, I'd definitely say that it's a... I feel like it's like a pretty solid toss-up, usually in like the negative direction about meeting your meeting your heroes. Uh, 
when you realize they're real people with their own, you know, different their, their own issues. <laughs> yeah, flaws yeah. and stuff. <laughs> that's that's gonna name my autobiography: Heroes with Issues. Oh, that's actually kind of Zymox is perfect. Heroes with Issues. All right, so why don't we uh, why don't we get another song? Let's, let's rip another fat one. Yeah, we'll get the. Uh, we'll, what's the name? Of, what's the name of this one? Um, a certain person. A certain person. Okay, so uh, here we go. Light Asylum Live here on Snaggy Tunes. We came in search of music, search of immortality, to be like God, to be like God. Like, like,
Woo. Woo. Amazing. Yeah, sorry, that one was a little rough, you guys. No. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning. You know, we say, it, in the end, it was all. As, as we, we say the same thing about cooking. It's like, uh, just don't. Or life. Yeah, or life. Don't tell anybody until somebody <laughs> says something. Yeah, until, <laughs> until somebody says something, just be like, yep. If you yeah. see something, say something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see something so, which of these, which of the songs you've played are going to be coming out on the new record next year? Um, well, I think, you know, a certain person originally to us was like the single. Right. And then somehow, in this dark day and age, Dark Allies ended up stealing the light. So, um, magic. 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 Again. <laughs> dark magic. Stealing the light. Um, but so, yeah, I think we'll have to put a certain person on the full length, kind of like, you know, TV on the radio and satellite, you know. It came out on the EP. And then uh, it came out on the full length once they dropped that. They did. They just did an awesome set of Virgin Free Fest. Cool, cool. We wanted to come, but we were playing show ourselves that day with, uh, we, uh, with Flying Lotus and Gang Gang Dance at Le Poison Rouge. That was Thursday, right? Yeah. And uh, it was an NYU students only thing. We were there. Thing. We were oh, there. Cool. Yeah. Cool. We, uh, we're NYU students. Yep. Oh. No. Yeah. What's up? <laughs> Freshman class. Uh, can't wait. 2015. Yeah. Yeah, what's up? What's up? <laughs> can't, yeah. can't wait to turn 21. If anybody wants f- to, yeah. I'll get some wings on my uh, dorm eating points. <laughs> I'm going to get a fake ID at Washington Square. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going out to McDougal and 3rd to get my moods, and then we're getting Michigan IDs. <laughs> uh, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen Gang Gang Dance. I, I mean, amazing. heard that. Amazing. Amazing. So, such really a good... Family. Really? Love them. Uh, and the, uh, the guy, the positive vibes guy. Yeah. Taco. Totally... Taco. Yeah. Taco. Is that is, is he a permanent part of the live yes. show? Yes. yes, yes, that's what he does. He just spreads good vibes. I mean, advisor. this is gonna say, but uh, when we were young and into ska and saw the Mighty Mighty Boston's, it's like the Ben Carr of the like freak, the Ben freak Carr, of, the Ben Carr of the art world. <laughs> that's a deep reference. I was a more of a, uh, <laughs> a yeah, I was a yeah, I was like a a different kind of ska fan. I think I, I you know, would I was, you like a second wave? Uh, no, the first, first wave, wave actually. I was, who who I was, was in second? I it was, I feel like it went like right from like first to third, and like second wave was. Well, this uh, second, second wave was probably like madness. Or madness. Something? It was yeah. the eighties. What? First, oh, well, the first wave. I'm okay. Second wave. You, yeah. First um, first wave was like uh, Scatolites. Like them? Yeah, yeah, like straight up from Jamaica. From Jamaica. Yeah. And the second straight wave up. was like the, the English. The yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's cl- where I was I mean, on the second you, wave. You could put yeah, the clash. Sure. I mean, I wouldn't put the clash in there. But they had influences. They had influences. That was the second wave. so great then, about England that they were like heavily influenced, like from the slits, you know, and the yeah. clash and, and then all fast, the selector, all those bands. <laughs> fast forward the third wave when I'm dancing up to Less Than Jake, getting fired <laughs> on my toilet paper gun. So what is gang gang dance has like... M- they're not straight up ska influences, but they're heavily influenced yeah. by dub and stuff. Yeah, I mean, and they, and they brought what, the dance. I mean, what is dubstep? Sixth wave, <laughs> right? It's, it's not act- a wave. It's actually 18th dimension. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you have the record coming out in spring. We're going to do it backwards. Could you tell me backwards? Okay. November, you have the uh, new single coming out, or yeah, Shallow Tears. We just re-recorded it, and it sounds amazing. Um, Why the re-record? Um, you know, just to give the fans something new. And the first one is straight up a demo we recorded in a space as big as your radio. Yeah, loft. Loft. Yeah. <laughs> loft apartment. Like, imagine your bathroom in... Um, the Boar's Head? Bushwick. Yeah. yeah or Boar, the Boar's Head. Right and, then you have, and then you have something special coming out in October. 
October is the Mexican 100th release from the record label Mexican Summer, um, which is a. By the way, shout out to Mexican Summer and to Jess for setting this up. Yeah, thanks, yes. Jess. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Mexican <laughs> Summer. I can't believe they've already had 100. Woo! Amazing. Congratulations. That'll be out in October, and that's a split um, produced on both sides by uh, Ford and Low Patton, formerly known as uh, Games. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so one track with myself. Truly, and then uh, also a lovely lady from a band of the same name, Tamarin. Amazing. Mm. Um, that so comes out in October. We're going to get you to play one more song. Okay. We want to say thank you for coming on. Thanks for having to us. To Light Asylum. Um, do you want to give us all the like the very special, like where to find, where to email, where to follow? Oh, cool. You can just, uh, if you have any inquiries about booking, you can go to our man, Avery McTaggart at the agency group in the U.S. We're still looking for a European booking agent. If you just want to write us and tell us how much you love or hate us, you can write us at lightasylummusic at gmail.com. Don't, don't, hate, don't send me Don't hate, don't hate <laughs> Come on. Because we don't have time for it. Really. Honestly. It, Life is short and yeah. we don't have time for it. And we'll just like not even open it. Yeah. Um, no, I'm kidding. What if they um, count, <laughs> What if they put the subject line like, we love you, and you open it up, and it's, it's like, fuck it. I mean, oh, can I say, like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's the internet. internet. You got eight <laughs> seconds to delete that. Um, and then if you want to just like see a discog, once we, you know, you can go to mexicansummer.com, and you can also go to Academy Records or other music to buy physical copies of our um, I don't understand. EP on vinyl. You don't understand? Oh, okay, vinyl. Okay. Who, took the, who took the We photo have CDs on the, on the with a EP really, cover. Um, our friend Matthew Heiss uh, shot that, and he's a really Great amazing uh, fashion photographer, Matthew Heiss. And the next show? Uh, the next show is... Swarthmore College. Swarthmore College in Pittsburgh. That's the Earthworms. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, it's a... Yeah. Earthworms. How do, you, how do you know that? Because What's it's, you rearrange the letters, Earthworms. That's their school. Whoa. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Wow. All right, well, thank you. And uh, <laughs> and if you have an apartment for Shannon, you can hit him up on Twitter at Lightest Lineup. Uh, all right. So and I don't want to pay um, that that booking fee, whatever yeah. that crap is. Yeah. Um, and I want to stay in Williamsburg because I've been here for ten years, um, and I think I just deserve to be able to stay. I would agree. What's the name of the last song you're playing? A certain. Oh wait, sorry. Uh, end, of days. end of days. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you for listening to Snacky Tunes. We have VHS or Beta uh, DJing next week, and we'll be back with more episodes. Here we go uh, with Light Sound. Take it out.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.